Welcome to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. Today, I'll be joined by Luke Mel to discuss risk analysis and trip planning. Luke is the author of the Packcraft Handbook, is a swift water safety instructor, and hosts a popular online trip report and outdoor instructional website. Stay tuned for Outdoor Explorer. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordock. Joining me is Luke Mel. Welcome, Luke. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're out on my deck here, and today, we'll, uh, to the listeners, we'll probably have a few planes flying over once in a while, but it's Outdoor Explorer, so what the heck. So, Luke, tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into the outdoors. Um, let's see. I, I grew up in McGrath, Alaska, so I, I moved up there when I was four, and part of being in McGrath was being outside a lot and and it wasn't really recreation for fun it was more like chores so when if you're going outside it was usually to bring something back home like um, firewood or, or moose or fish or something so that was my outdoor experience as a kid and then I came into Anchorage for high school and that's when I first discovered recreation more for like the playing aspect uh, which I'm really grateful for because that's actually a lot more fun than doing it for chores uh, in my opinion. And so I, I spent a lot of my, my, I guess my later high school years climbing on the Seward Highway and backpacking on the Kenai Peninsula. We had a backpacking class in, in high school. That's where I got into backpacking. Which high school were you at? That was at Stellar. Okay. Which yep. was a great, it was a great school for me, a great fit. And part of it was because there were um, programs to help get me outside. Yeah. That must have been a bit of a shock coming from McCarthy to Anchorage. It was, uh, it was, yep, it was a shock. And, and it's McGrath, not McCarthy. Oh, McGrath. Sorry. No McGrath. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Happens. McGrath. Sorry. Oh, boy. That this happens to everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, this is not a story I'm proud of, but I actually met somebody in Montana, and they were like, oh, I know a girl that was that spent time in McGrath. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure you're thinking McCarthy, because nobody spends time in McGrath, right? There's no reason right. to go to McGrath unless you live there. Or going through on the Iditarod, and and he's like, no, no, I'm sure she went up for the summers, and her name was Kate, and and just all these details, and I was like, there's no way, like she was my age, and I couldn't think of anybody named Kate. He was talking about my stepsister. Oh no, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's so small. It's so yeah. small, and it was just like, oh, oh no, no. I was so embarrassed to realize that, like, oh man, just because I'm so I'm so set on assuming people think uh, McCarthy when I say McGrath. McGrath. So yeah. if it happens, I yeah. forgive you. Oh, no worries. <laughs> um, so, and then you also um, gravitated towards science. Yep, I I always, yeah, even in high school, I was real motivated for the for all academics, but especially for science. And I left state to go to college and grad school at geology and geophysics and earned a couple master's degrees. And then came back to Alaska about 13 or 14 years ago. Great. And we'll get back to that connection, the... Uh, Geophysics and the outdoors. Cool. There's a lot, a lot there. I think to talk about. Now, so you're uh, just come out with a book, um, Packrafting, correct? What's the title? The Packraft Handbook. The Packraft Handbook. Yeah, uh, it's an excellent book. I just looked through it. Uh, but you're also into the endurance wilderness racing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I I guess I'm hesitating a little bit because I definitely was into that. It was and, okay. and I'm slowing down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've done those courses. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what what other sort of hobbies do you bring to this uh, table? Um, man, honestly, most of my hobbies are outdoor oriented. Um, I don't 
I don't play uh, instruments. I don't really have an artistic side. Yeah. But I um, I work, and then when I'm not working, I'm I'm playing or I'm I'm making um, processing photos from a trip or making videos from trips and. I've been doing more and more instructional, like building more instructional content over the last few years as I have more to offer. Yep. Uh, so those are really where my, my hobby energy goes. I guess also conservation, that's legitimate. Leave no trace, education, that kind of stuff. That's a, that's a great, those are great combinations. Let's talk a bit about the um, this past year. Um, and, and I know you've been looking at different incidences. So we'll we'll start with that, and then we'll get uh, sort of delve into uh, trip planning. Um, but um, let's start with this past year with you. Let's talk about some of the trips maybe that you did and some of the the, the positive things that have happened before we delve into maybe the near misses and the accidents. Um, this has been an unusual year for me, uh, where I've been outside less than usual. Actually, the first year since 2007 where I haven't had a long trip like a uh, an at least 100 mile trip oh, wow. and part of that was because I poured myself into making this book the Packcraft Handbook and it it just came out in May so it's it's fresh um, and part of it is that I was injured uh, through the winter broke a rib and then broke my foot at the beginning of the summer so just a combination of of, of human errors um, so I spent the summer instructing more than anything else, doing in-person uh, river safety, swift water rescue teaching, um, and, and a little bit of less time playing out on my own. But I'd be happy to kind of summarize. I guess I should also say I spent the last 10 years doing data science, and, and that's part of my this you know geology, geophysics, the, the nerd side of my interests. <laughs> um, and I quit that job to to be able to finish the book. Um, but I still, everything that I did in the book was informed as much as possible by actual incidents. Like I want to collect data and sift through it. I enjoy that process and look for those common threads, common factors. And then in the case of the book, instruct the relevant um, um, techniques uh, that might help prevent future incidents. So. If you're interested, I can kind of summarize what's going on in the packraft community in terms of safety. Sound relevant? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah let's okay. start with that. So, when I when I was writing the book um, in let's say December of last year, there were 12 known packraft fatalities ever. And something I put in the book was the distinguishing uh, or to distinguish between actual risk and perceived risk. And in the book, th the way that I uh, introduced that is that if you talk to experts about what should go wrong in pack rafting, you hear things about getting caught in wood and about getting trapped in the river, say, with foot entrapment, or it could be limb, body, but somehow stuck. Like, you are out of your boat, you put a foot down on the riverbed, and it snags under a rock or between submerged wood or something. Um, so that was a perceived risk. But when I looked at the actual fatalities and accidents, none of them were from those uh, causes. And so the actual risk was different than what we were perceiving as a risk. So I put that in the book. I said, if what we're paying attention to is what's actually going wrong, it's basically cold water and paddling alone. 
So I'm out there teaching a three-day swift water rescue course. If you base it on those statistics, we should spend like two and a half of those days just talking about what you wear <laughs> and how to find friends to go boating with. Yeah, yeah it's so true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the reason I'm giving you kind of that long introduction is because that changed this summer. This summer there were three pack, three pack raft fatalities and then um, a, a rescue out of Haines, a Coast Guard rescue, and then uh, a boating fatality, it, it was a kayaker on the Tonsina, but pack rafts were part of that group and, and kind of same so social circle, so I have information on that one too. And, uh, and, th and three of these were people getting trapped in wood. So yep. the perceived risk, even though it had been 10 years of monitoring these accidents, they didn't click in until this summer, and then they clicked in in a big way. So a part of me sorting through this data is so that I can come out of it and say, here's what we need to pay more attention to. And looking at this year, uh, it's wood. And and people knew that. You know that, right? If you have this awesome boating background, and and I know it on paper, um, but now I now I know it through friendships, uh, through the people that are that are um, dying because of getting stuck in wood on rivers. Yeah, I uh, you know taught a swift water class, swift water class at APU for years with Tim Johnson, and Tim said the scariest thing we did was go down the map because all the wood. Yeah, like we could do all kinds of other stuff, but he he would be really well. We'd both be super nervous about being on the Matanuska River. Yeah. Yeah, and and part of what, and again, I just I'm just digging deep. I'm trying to collect as much data on on these incidents and on others as possible. And part of what's going on. So I'll back up a little bit. In the boating world, statistically, most accidents are happening on Class One water. So that's water that doesn't really have technical difficulty. And the, those accidents are, I think, generally happening within the first hour. So that comes down to equipment, uh, inexperience, and alcohol. I think those are probably the biggest factors. After those class one incidents, the next um, type of water that has the most fatalities is class four. So that requires a pretty strong skill set. Those guys generally have all the equipment, they have training, and what's going wrong is there are unusual s uh, conditions, and that almost always means high water. And for those listeners who aren't familiar, uh, white waters are rated of one through six. Yeah, and that's just difficulty. It doesn't tell you anything about the consequences. And this is kind of a bummer, um, but we, that maybe that's something we could get into later or not. Uh, this again, you can tell. Like, I'm just yeah. I'm gonna. No, I just that's right. That's, no, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this been, this is, you're, you're getting a view into my where my head has been for a year. But I just want to. Uh, one of the insights from looking at these accidents is that. A learning point for me is that when I've thought about high water, I've thought about high water like on that day. So the water is higher than usual, and a, a kayaker, a pack raft, or a canoe is caught off guard and um, capsizes and gets pushed into uh, a wood hazard. Yeah, we're going to uh, keep going here. I'm just going to take up a little bit of station ID. This is Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media, and I'm your host, Paul Tordat. We're talking uh, with Luke Mel about uh, a little bit about boating safety and trip planning. Yeah, so let's continue on here. Okay, yeah, so ju just to flush out this final, this learning point for me is that I, I had been thinking of, of this unusual high water as like a, a today thing or a yesterday thing. 
but for both uh, the fatality in Juno and the fatali- or and the rescue in Haines this summer, what was unusual is that there had been high precipitation events previous. So in in um, for the June one, I think it was two weeks prior, like uh, something oh, like seven huh. inches of uh-huh. rain on uh-huh. the glacier. Huh. And in Haines, I don't remember when that big landslide was. Right. Uh, that was, it seems like last late fall, early yeah. winter. So yeah. It, yeah, a whole season before. But the result of both of those high precipitation events is that the rivers changed. Mm-hmm. I talked to a guy that was part of that Haynes incident, and he said, I've been, I've been jet boating this river for nine years. He's like, I'm real familiar with this river. And so he let his guard down, and he's comfortable admitting that, and sure, I would too, you know, nine years of yeah. familiarity. Um, and so there was one corner, and that corner is what, what, what caused this um, uh, two, two members flip out of their boats and get stuck on a cliff. Mm-hmm. Coast Guard came Coast in and Guard. got him off yep. the cliff, but th- but that was an unusual circumstance because the river changed, and and same story talking to a, a rescuer that was involved on the Juno um, fatality is that he's like yeah these guys were given information that was very accurate two weeks ago, uh, and that wasn't accurate after this rain event because of how much wood had flushed into the system. Yeah, I've I've been doing a bunch of trips up in the uh, Arctic. Or I do one about once a year, and that's becoming more and more prevalent up there. Oh, really? Yeah, more flooding. Uh, Mostly the Arctic Ocean's open, mm. uh, one theory at least, so there's more uh. low pressures being formed in the Arctic where there used to never be. Mm. And so we're getting these very um, wet uh, systems coming through from the north, and the rivers flood very fast up there. It's super fast, as you know, from the uh, permafrost. Yeah. So that, that it's gotcha with that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, dynamic systems, and that's that's part of the fun, right? That's part of why we like playing outside is that it is dynamic. It's creative. It forces us to be creative. So one of the so flooded water going up. Yeah, so I, I get that. What else? Um, you know, another take home for me is that in general, the folks that are involved in these incidents are doing a really good job. Like they are scouting. They are portaging. Um, they're doing a good job with risk assessment and still getting in trouble. And and I don't have a, a f- you know, a feel-good take-home for this, and I definitely don't have a blame for this. It's like I think the more that I learn about these incidents, the more empathetic I am toward the people involved. It's like, um, oh, I guess safety drift. Are you familiar with that yep. concept? I put that in the book too. Um I guess I'll give you my definition of it for the readers, but basically it's it's easy to, to see maybe an, an avalanche uh, incident or a boating incident in the news and think, well, I never would have done that. I wouldn't have gone there on that day. That's a real common reaction. That was my reaction when I was 20 years old, for sure. Yep. And And now I have more respect for this concept of safety drift where what went wrong maybe started at 8 o'clock when I skipped breakfast because I was late to carpool and then we're rushing so I can get back at 4 or it's getting dark and I forgot my headlamp. It's all these little things. Each decision point that we make as we're going up the route or down the river um, that can just kind of nudge us incrementally into a position where another small decision causes a big deal. Mm-hmm. 
so I, so I, I'm carrying that perspective when I'm having these conversations with these guys because it's like, yeah, that that's the same decision I would have made. Yep, yep, yes, 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 yes. Maybe you know, maybe not. But then, really getting unlucky, maybe more than anything. Yeah. The Tonsina fatality. He hit submerged wood. You know, wood you can't see. Mm. That sucks. Like, yeah. How can you defend against that? Yeah. Yeah. And and you could if you if you scouted every single rapid, every single corner. But then you wouldn't. You know, you could cover about a mile a day instead of. Right. Well, then there was the um, folks on Eagle River up up on the calm part who died in the very very you know mellow water, slow moving water, and just drifted into a log jam. And the force of water is very very easy to underestimate. Yep. Yep. I would say in your experience teaching white water rescue and swift water rescue, um, what what are some of the key takeaways from that? I mean, I I tell people take those courses. Yeah, and me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that people really appreciate in those courses is swimming the rivers, yeah. like being forced to take the time to actually go for a swim, and they're wearing a dry suit, and that is uh, is a really effective way to to convey to people how important it is to wear a dry suit because imagining swimming in Alaska without a dry suit, it's just, yeah, you just can't do it. Yeah. You can do it, but you're, you'll, you will be hypothermic really quickly. So swimming when it's planned, when you're doing it for practice is fun. Actually, a lot of people are like, let's do that again. Um, and, and, and I want to, with all this stuff, we're talking about all these things that go wrong. It, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be boating. And it doesn't mean these guys are making big, obvious mistakes. For me, in, in these swift water classes, it's really just about learning. Like what you said, the water's powerful, and that's not intuitive. And it's not intuitive that twice the velocity equals four times the force. Like, you can really get caught off guard. And so I think we're playing a game. We're choosing to do this because it's fun, and there's a right way to do it, and that right way is to to dedicate time and money to get trained and to to learn how to swim to get comfortable in the water to learn how to use a throw rope um and i think approaching it that way and that's sort of what's outlined in the in the packraft handbook um hopefully that is is creating really fun and and lasting experiences for people where they just keep wanting to go back to the river yep I've had a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I still do. Yeah. One of the uh, phrases you have in the book is um, identifying what you, uh, we don't know. you want to explain that, what you meant by that? Yeah. This, you can probably tell us that's the same headspace that I'm just kind of bouncing around in where it's like, what do we need to do differently to prevent accidents? So I, I guess I haven't mentioned that what put me on the path to create this book in the first place was losing a friend in a pack raft um, drowning where he got separated from his boat and and that in that case I just felt like that could have been me there was no reason it wasn't me we'd been boating together just a couple days before neither of us had dry suits neither of us had helmets we both chose the portage the worst section of rapids mm-hmm. um, he got in trouble and I didn't mm. and so that's what put me on this path and it forced me to reevaluate everything honestly um yep. why i'm playing outside what my skill set is 
what's fun, you know, what's risk, what's reward, all that. And and so part of what came out of that is trying to identify what I don't know. I, I, I restarted my learning curve and I was super intentional. I, I, I sought out more mentorship. I, I sought out the Swiftwater training. Um, I bought a kayak so that it would force me to learn more about the currents and, and how to put the boat on edge and what that does. Um, that's that was the path I took out of that, like the recovery path for me, mm-hmm. trying to identify what what I didn't know, which is really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the reason yeah. You don't, you know, don't it. know it. It's just sort of a blind spot. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. And so that then you're I'm leaning on mentors. I'm leaning yeah. on people that can help me see what I don't know. Um, I started teaching the Swiftwater classes, and I'm reaching like 40 people a summer. And I was like, man. I'd sure like to get this to more than 40. And so that's where the book came from. It's like, well, I can, I can put this in a book. And yeah, sure enough, I think I, I sold over 5,000 copies this summer. So Wow, that's great. It's awesome. It's that's awesome. Yeah. People are psyched. And I'm that's psyched more that they, my book. they want. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not why I brought it up. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's an old Sikhayakin book anyway. So. <laughs> I have your book. Yeah. Um, how do you suggest people... Progress. I mean, there's obviously there's taking classes. You hit on that in the book quite a bit. Is education and mentorship. But what other? How do you? How 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 have you? Let's start with that. Progressed in your judgment and your experiences, and you're still sitting here talking to me. Well, I think I was lucky. I think I progressed in a way that wasn't particularly healthy, and then and then Rob's drowning snapped me out of that, made me aware of that, and so the relearning and. Um, and being really intentional about it, and and so now, to answer your question, like how I think people should progress, um, I think mentorship is a huge part of it, and identifying people that that are good at uh, good at caring for you and and being able to evaluate what's appropriate for you, mm-hmm. that's huge. That's not a resource that everybody has. That's a little bit of a luxury, for sure. And then I think it's baby steps. Um, there are a lot of accidents in water, but also you know people going to the Brooks Range for the first time, um, where I don't really know what the motivation is um, to to bite off something that's really ambitious. Yeah. Without a lot of the the groundwork to build the skill set to do it. So, f- so for me, I'm in this backpacking class in high school. I'm going on a backpacking trip, overnight trip to Gull Rock, and I'm carrying two quarts of liquid milk, you know, because I don't <laughs> nice. know any better. I drink milk at home. I'm drinking milk in the woods. Like, yeah, of course. Like that's, that's part of the learning curve, and, that's, yeah. and so it, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to go from there to Denali. Um, especially with the milk especially yeah. with the milk <laughs> and and I've got like a dozen of those stories and we all yeah. I think we all do it's like that's part of being on the learning curve you learn from mistakes and ideally those mistakes are made in places that aren't um, that are low consequence like like that one on Gull Rock I'm four miles from the road you know or something if something goes wrong and then just to to push those limits incre- incrementally um, to see what it's like to do that first overnight backpacking trip and your first four-day backpacking trip and your first winter camp. Well, I would recommend the first winter camp should be maybe one night instead of six, you know, just so you can kind of work out your system and figure out um, how much food you need and what kind of stove you're going to bring and all yeah. that. 
Maybe next to a hut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have a cabin that first night of winter yeah. cabbing, yeah. Uh, winter camping. Yeah. And and then I learned a lot on the wilderness classics. Yeah. Um, I learned more on those than anything else. And and that was, a, I think I've done a 12 or 13 of those at this point. Wow. Yeah. And then took what we learned on those uh, and applied them to some of the bigger mountains like Denali. So I went through all that stuff before thinking, man, I should get on Denali. That's really different than somebody coming up from New Jersey uh, who's uh, really wants to get on top of Denali and for whatever reason, uh, but maybe without having done the years of, of work to get to that yeah. uh, position. And I had a great trip up there, and part of that was because I knew how to manage my cold feet, and I knew how to tell that I needed to put my gloves on, and I knew what food I needed and, and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, excellent. Uh, this is Alaska Public Media's Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. We're talking to Luke Mel about outdoor safety, and um, and we'll get into trip planning here in a little bit. Uh, I, I think um, the other thing that you talk about is um, a couple of quotes I like, or train for the worse, and that uh, reminds me of any, anybody who performs or you train like it's real. Um, any hints there, how to do that? Because you don't want to be in the worst. But you still have to train for it. So yeah, yeah. What's worked really well for me is is to recognize, either on my own or again to have a mentor that's there can be like, you know what, this is a good this is a good place for you to swim, mm-hmm. or this is a good place for you to try a self arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a good place for you to try to ski backwards. Right, it, it's all that stuff. Just yeah. to to play with it, and and see what happens and start collecting data. Um, for me, this was on Eagle River here just outside of Anchorage where uh, one of those years where I was really learning and paddling a lot we'd we'd meet every I don't know you know Tuesday night after work and we'd have a um, little barbecue on the on the, the day use area there and then we'd run bridge to bridge yeah and at the end of bridge to bridge on the section the final section of water before the takeout I'd flip intentionally I'd ah. capsize yeah uh, just to practice recovering and and Two weeks later, I'd flip, but I'd also throw my paddle as far as I could. Oh, nice. So I'd practice yeah. getting the boat and hand paddling to get my paddle, you know. So just making a game out of it. Yeah. Um, that was really effective to me, and and, and, and that that worked because I was in a, effectively in a, in a controlled environment, low consequence. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I, I try to do that in my classes where um, the students might think that this is nuts, Sometimes even other instructor thinks it's nuts, <laughs> but I've seen it enough to know that this is doable. Like, we can do this. You can practice your rescue here. Even if it is blowing 20 knots and it's really windy out because right around the corner is a nice beach with a camp, and it's calm. Yeah. And so if something bad happens, there's a spot right there that we can we have the capability to hit you to. Yes, it reminds me of, um, so I took my woofer, um, my, my medical training from Deb Iango, and and the way that Deb presented this is that your brain is just a search engine. You know, it's just Google. Yeah. And so when you do uh, lose that ski or or take that slide or or fall out of your boat, your brain is like, "What do we do now?" Yeah. And it's really nice if you have some some matches there that you know your search engine hits, and it's like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, I've done this before. Climb back in my boat." Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what we're looking for. I'm just uh, I'm trying to collect as much data as possible. And if I can do that in a controlled setting, that's awesome. Boy, this would be so much easier if we weren't in Alaska, right? If yeah, we were yeah, down yeah, in, in yeah. warm water, and the little bit I've paddled in warm water, I'm like, sure, I'll try that. A swim <laughs> is just like, yeah, yeah. I'd just swim this just for the fun of it. 
Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Paul Tordak. Uh, this is Outdoor Explorer. I'm talking with Luke Mel. Uh, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak, and I'm sitting here with Luke Mel talking about his experiences and write his book um, about pack rafting and trip planning. So, Luke, let's uh, transition a little bit from, I don't know, not the dark side, but the, <laughs> the, the part about safety uh, to sort of the funner side, maybe, um, about uh, trip planning. And especially we're sitting here on my deck in early October, though we already have snow. I've already been skiing once. Um, I you know, pulled out my avalanche transceiver and hmm. sort of w- w- brushed, dusted off the cobwebs a little bit for winter safety. But let's uh, talk about um, trip planning a little bit. Um, why don't we uh, start with um, a little b- a, a bit about um, planning and what steps you take when you uh, think about a trip. Um, and it could be any trip, really. Just maybe just a day trip up in the two hatch. Um, I have a, I think, uh, so there's probably a spectrum of how dorky you can be in the planning phases of your adventures. <laughs> yeah. And I'm on, I am an, an end member in that spectrum. <laughs> I spend a lot of time doing work before the trip. And, and that work for me is, uh, a lot of it's on Google Earth. And so I really, especially up here in Alaska where we, we don't have that many trails to, to play on, um, I'm on Google Earth exploring the terrain and identifying features that I want to visit, things I want to see, and I'm also uh, identifying potential hazards or the hard parts of a route. And I'm recording all that and putting it down on, on these you know digital files that I can then carry on my phone with imagery. Um, so I'm... I mean, I'm a little bit embarrassed about how how dorky I am in that approach. And that right now makes me feel like I should try to justify it. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I'm doing that is, there's a couple of reasons. One is that if I do a bunch of that work ahead of time, I don't have to do it when I'm out there. Mm-hmm. And that liberates me in a way to, like, I kind of know where I'm going out there or on the on the big scale. Like, I know what valley I'm aiming for. And so I don't I don't need to spend too much time thinking about it on the fly. That said, that part can be really fun, and, and some people really want that in their adventures. So I'm doing a different style. I'm I'm looking for efficiency. I'm trying to move fast. Um, I will I will gladly uh, exchange some of that on the fly exploration for being able to cover more miles. Like a big part of my motivation is to see as much as possible under my own power. And so to do that efficiently, I'm planning a bunch ahead of time. So are you using Google Earth um, on how, what are you looking for? It, it depends. I guess I'll just give some specifics. So if it's a boating trip, I'm looking for rapids. I'll zoom mm-hmm. into that imagery. And, and if Google Earth isn't crisp enough, I'll pull in the, the Esri. Um, mm-hmm. 
world imagery. Like, and that's a GIS software. Yeah, but you can also pull it. You can you can view it right in Google Earth. Okay. There, this stuff's a little bit tricky, but and this is what I was doing professionally for a decade, and that's that's kind of what put me in the position to use these tools um, so powerfully. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically I'm looking for, for high resolution imagery and I'm, I'm looking for maybe rapids in a river or if it's a winter trip, I'm looking at the passes and I'm trying to identify how steep the passes are. Um, I'd look at, at near real time imagery to see if there's open leads, like, um, if there's snow bridges over the valleys, like over the river, or if there might be, um, if it looks like there might be open water, that would be another hazard for me. Um, I'm looking for landing strips. I'm looking for plan B's, the bailouts, you know, if something, if we need to get out and we can't do our, our, our plan A. Um, I'm looking for vegetation to see like, how do I avoid alder at all costs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, how is that a, is that a talus slope or is that a cliff band? Yeah. Some people can pull that information off a topo map and I generally can't, like I'm doing almost everything from imagery. Yeah. And part of that, again, is that Alaska, the topo maps for Alaska get outdated pretty fast. As yeah. you know, I mean, anything glaciated is way off. Yeah. Um, yeah, so th that's, that's what I'm looking for is trying to get familiar with the area and make a plan A, but then also have those bailouts and document all that and then bring it with me on the trip. Yeah, I remember the first time I used um, Google Earth, I did the little Melchino, just a couple of days coming out of Talkeetnes, and I thought, oh, I'm going to look at Google Earth. And I'm like, well, there's a log jam. And I didn't hold how old that image was. And I'm like, well, there might be a log jam there. Usually where log jams happen, they, ha they repeat themselves. And sure enough, came around the corner, and I'm like, we better get out and scout this, and there's a log jam wow. sitting right there. Yeah, and no it, kidding. it was really cool. It was like, wow. And it might have been coincident. It might have just been one of those things that was just happened to be there but it was pretty i've become a big fan of it at that point oh i appreciate hearing that story because yeah that's super validating to the process yeah. because there it, it there is a little bit of a dark side to it which is that it it takes away from some of the surprise some of the mystery of being out there i don't want to be surprised by a log jam right that's <laughs> yeah 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 exactly log jams i stay away from um when uh when what else do you think so you're using um the the imagery to route plan basically uh, what other things you're thinking about when you're uh, planning a trip um uh, the next thing might be logistics and so that will vary a lot from whether it's a you know a day trip or a weekend trip based out of town or whether we're going deeper into the woods um if it's a long trip in the Brooks Range about how to get a food cache and, and that kind of thing, how to get in, how to get out. So that's that's where I go generally after my 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 route planning, um, route drawing phase is to try to identify how I'm actually gonna get in there. Yeah. Um when you're uh, and what about people? You yeah. earlier you talked about, you know, uh uh every time what all people need to do is uh, about who they're who they're going doing on a going on a trip with. So, yeah, how does that work? I feel like I've been really lucky up here. I think in general, we in Alaska have a lot of amazing trip partners to choose from, and and my theory on this is that living in Alaska forces us to acknowledge that things don't always work out. <laughs> 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 that stuff breaks, that wind blows, that snow falls. And so you just um, develop a mindset 
to to go with the flow and to be flexible and change plans um, and to expect some hard parts. So, gosh, I've probably had, you know, 60 amazing trip partners. Um, and and they've all got this great ability to, um, or willingness to, to, to talk about something that they feel uncomfortable with, you know, in terms of safety, um, and also willingness to, to change plans if we think that needs to happen. So I've been really lucky with that. Um, I think that's really important, the ability to communicate and say you're uncomfortable with something and for people to listen to that. Yeah. We play a couple games in our groups. Typically, typically everybody's pretty quiet, pretty passive. Um, nobody wants to step on each other's toes. And so yeah. we'll often stall out when we need to make a decision, even if it's a small decision, because nobody <laughs> really wants to put out that strong opinion. Yeah. So one of the games we play is called um, Slightest Preference. <laughs> and so if you can milk the slightest preference out of somebody, you know, like, well, what if, if you just had to make, you know, <laughs> I love it. and then when they give that slightest preference, it's on. And then anything that goes wrong on that route is totally their fault. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah. It's like, well, that's part of the game. And that brings in humor. And yeah. it's like, you know, if my ski breaks because we're on their route, it's their fault <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the other game we'll play is president of the day. And it's, it's very similar to that. It's like, if you make a decision, you're kind of stuck making the decisions for the rest of the day oh, and that. also stuck taking flack for anything that goes wrong. I don't know if that would encourage me to uh, speak up. I don't <laughs> yeah. 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 It might be. A, um, yeah. And I think also um, I, I, I just that willingness to let people um, and laugh about it, I think. Totally. Have about it to have humor about yeah, it. Have, have, have been. Um, when you're... Um, well, we're getting into winter here, and I want to talk a little bit about winter. We talked about pack rafting and water in the first half of the show. When we're thinking about winter in particular, what are you thinking about um, in, in planning? Well, for so in this transition period, I guess first I'll say that I'm gonna I'm gonna make the boating season last as long as possible, <laughs> and I yeah. and I'm just a little bit sensitive that we you know we jumped right in talking about accidents and all these hard parts and man, boating is super fun and I'm going to six mile every weekend until I absolutely can't yeah. because it's so fun. It's super rewarding for me to to get in the water and, and learn how to catch a tongue and watch how it pulls me over there. And gosh, it's just a, it's just a, I don't know, it feels like a huge gift to be able to learn that medium. And, and I, I would say pack reptons opened it up to a lot of people. Yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, yeah. There, are the few kayaker, the few new kayakers that I know up here, all started in pack rafts. Oh, fun! <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then yeah. they develop a love for the water, and then they're interested in a vessel that kind of forces them to to really interact more directly with the water. Yeah, that's been my background too. So I'll, I'll milk that as long as I can. Some years that's been November. Some years that's been October. Um, and then I'll personally be switching into um, Nordic skating. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and um, for folks that aren't familiar with those ice skates that that clip onto ski boots, and I, I gosh, I might be more inclined if if you force me to just do one activity all year, it might be Nordic skating. Oh wow, really? It huh? is so fun. Yeah, it huh? is so fun. You get to go places you wouldn't go otherwise, like swamps. Um, yeah. A swamp in the summer is not that cool. <laughs> a swamp when you can ice skate over it at like six miles an hour is a blast. 
And, nice. and it turns out we, we have a lot of swamps, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> most of the state, I think, right? Yeah, most of the state. <laughs> yeah. So I've had some really special trips uh, on ice skates, and and I and I hope for a great season. I, my first, the first, the reason I bought the ice skates was to fill this gap between boating and skiing. Yeah. And now I like want I want that gap to be as long as possible, <laughs> and I want to be able to skate. Like, oh, I'm not ready to ski. <laughs> yeah. And so let's talk about that, wilderness skating. I think we've had a show earlier um, on uh, skating, so, and, and, but we'll go ahead and touch on it a little bit. Um, and I'm interested in, again, safety a little bit, like how do you prepare. Um, I'm familiar with it. I've been on Rabbit Slough. I've been out on the lakes. Um, why do you, give us some tips about what your sort of levels are, like how fit you want the ice, um, what... Um, what conditions you would or wouldn't go out in, um, what kind of equipment you bring for rescue and that kind of thing? Well, it de- it depends to a degree, and this is the same for me with pack rafting, for skiing, uh, on how far we are from the road, how mm-hmm. far we are from the trailhead. But I guess, you know, unless we're in town proper, I've pretty much always got an ice screw and mm-hmm. a throw rope, and it's the same throw rope that I use in the summer for, for paddling. And the point of having those is that if somebody went through the ice, we could throw the rope to them, give them something to hold on to. We could put the screw in the ice to have a little anchor and tie it off so that then my hands are free to do some work, whatever work that is. And then I have a special ski pole that's got a real heavy tip. It's made for Nordic skating. And that thing is awesome. It's it's basically like a, like a calibrated... Um, so basically, I can snap my wrist and tap, tap, tap against the ice, and I can judge if oh, it'll support me from that. Huh. It doesn't work with a normal ski pole because a normal ski pole doesn't have as much mass. Uh-huh. I don't really want to carry this ski pole on a long trip because of that extra weight. Yeah. Um, but I, but it's really valuable in that. Like I can snap, 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 and I can be pretty confident that the ice will hold me up. Just by the sound it makes. No, it, whether it pops through or not. Oh, oh, you're look, actually looking to pop It's a little through. spearhead. It's uh-huh, a nasty uh-huh. little spearhead. Uh-huh. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, and and then, um, and so you had a throw rope, you had an ice screw, which I think is very interesting because uh, I started carrying a while, a while back because it made sense. Um, and, um, oh, and th- yeah. sorry, and picks. I forgot. Oh, picks. We've got the, the wearing the picks around our neck. Okay, right. Oh, so like the little things they sell in the store. They're little that, grippers, yep, that, 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 yeah, you could kind of imagine. In fact, I've seen the homemade versions where people just sharpen the end of a, a screwdriver. Great. Something like that to be able to give you some traction to pull out of the ice. Great. This is Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. We're talking to Luke Mal. We've moved on to winter sports now. We're talking about Nordic skiing. Um, and so, Luke... Uh, where so you're all outfitted? Um, in a sense, I'm you know if I'm just starting off, where to go or um, you know, how to get into this? I think the places to start are close to home. Um, that's like Westchester Lagoon for us in Anchorage, uh, and get familiar with the skates, familiar with the equipment, and then the canoe lake systems are uh-huh, a real yeah. treat. So Nancy Lake, when it's in um, Swan, the Swan Lake and Swanson yep. River loops on the peninsula. Yeah, are are really nice. I definitely feel more comfortable skating over um, still water, lake water, <laughs> than, than yeah. river water. Uh-huh. 
but there are some. There's like Rabbit Slough. Uh, gosh, there's just a bunch of, of pretty popular destinations. Klutna. Um But like anything, I'd, I would... What worked for me was to start small, you know, get comfortable yeah. close to home, and then and then step out a little bit further into the woods. Yeah, great. When, um, well, talk a little bit about some of your trips, um, and um, we talked about some of the sort of more more sort of dramatic. Oh, well, I, I know where I want to go with this, and it, with the Nordic skin, uh, skin. Uh, What's the when you go in the water? <laughs> what do you do? Because I've I've talked to a lot of people about this, and everybody asks about their different rescue um, scenario. Or, or yeah, so talk talk about that a little bit. Well, so this is something I will know more about in a couple months. Actually, I'm I'm registered to take an ice rescue um, course in Canada oh, okay. in December, oh, wow. and I'm doing that because. There's a lot of overlap between that and the Swiftwater Rescue that I'm already teaching. Mm-hmm. Same equipment, same same strategies, um, but I don't have formal training in it. So I'm going to take that, and then I'm I'm intending to start teaching some of that up here in uh, based out of Anchorage. Um, but our plan when somebody goes in the water is well, first of all, our backpacks have uh, like a dry bag with some some uh spare clothes in them and some other stuff and that's buoyancy that's kind of effectively that's a pfd yeah so that's um that's a case where i'm choosing to carry um puffy insulating clothes not just for the warmth but also for the buoyancy oh interesting so you go in the water that helps keep you on top and the strategy is to keep your arms on the ice shelf and to go out of the ice the same way you went into it. Right. So to, to, to reverse your direction. Um, I've heard people talk about being able to kind of slap their arm onto the surface of the ice to have it freeze in place if they can't get themselves out as a way to keep their head out of water. Does that make sense? Yep. So that's a scary scenario, yeah. but I kind of like knowing that it's it makes sense. You, the important part is to get your head out of the water, Yeah. and that would be a way to do that. Um, and then actually getting out of the water from friends that have done this, it really sounds like it's the kicking. It's bringing your legs up to the surface and kick, kick, kicking. Uh, this is the same actually as getting back into a pack raft. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe it'll, yeah, yeah, is that right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So legs up surface of the water and kick, kick, kick as you, as you use these ice grippers. The whole point of the ice grippers being around your neck is that they're ready to go, quick access. Yeah. It, it would be a mistake to carry them in a pocket because then you have to get into that pocket, get the grippers out, and, and manage it that way. Um, great. Uh, uh, let's um, talk about to, about to plan a little bit because this goes for the um, Nordic Skin or any of these trips is how remote, how quickly we, we get remote in Alaska. Um, so let's start with you. What's the most remote spot? How far out have you been? Or, or either physically or just sort of <laughs> mentally, like not out of it, but like mentally, like I know I've been in spots where I'm like, I am really remote right now when I really wasn't that remote, but I felt because of circumstances I was. So I think the, the, the effect of most remote, so that might not be true geographically, but for me it was probably on the, on a on a ski and pack raft traverse that we did over Mount Logan. Mm. All right. Um, and to do that trip, we started in Yakutat and we ended in McCarthy. It was a 370 mile route, so kind of a monster route, 
totally self-supported. So 30 days of food. We carried 30 days of food and fuel. Um, and we had a bunch of stuff go wrong in, in the middle of that. Oh, wow. And so that, that really did feel remote. That said, a plane could have got in there. Yeah. Uh, and planes do go in there to, to rescue people off Logan, you know, as often as that has to happen. Um, but with the, you know, we're always going into this mentality that um, we're going to self-rescue. And so that that's where I felt like, oh, crap, like, how are we going to get out of this on our own? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and weather shuts down, too. Yeah. Especially yeah, out there, you, can't you know. Count on this you can't count on the airplane up here. I'm actually yeah. building what I'm working on right now this fall is to, to build an, an online course about this trip planning stuff. And, and part of it is the emergency plan. And I and um, whenever I do this kind of stuff, both the, the Packraft handbook and this this course and, and the, the resources I have already on my website, what I'm really good at is collecting information from other people. It's <laughs> 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 like, yeah. actually my like, gift in life is like collecting information from the Paul Tordocks that are out there. <laughs> and so I did this in Denali. I stopped in at the ranger station. I'm talking with Chris Erickson about this idea, this online trip planning stuff. And he's like, here's how I would put it. He says, "If he says, pushing the SOS button should is not an emergency plan. Like, if you have to push your uh -huh. SOS button, that means that you did everything in your emergency plan and it just didn't work. Yeah. You just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I really liked, I like that because I think, shoot, you can have this $200 device in your back pocket. It's got that SOS button. It's really easy to get, to get lazy, honestly, and, 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 and make that be your plan. It's easy. It's less work. And be like, if something happens, I'll push this button. So as we talk about going remote, I think the mentality should be develop this plan, the bailout plan, the skill set, carry the equipment that you need to be able to get yourself out. So I'm, I'm kind of answering your next question already. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think, so you, so you led me into this, how, f how remote have I been? So I think what you want to know now is what's different about going remote. Is that right. basically yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and what, yeah, exactly. The next question is then how do you plan for that? How do you, yeah. 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 So the way that I think about this, and, and this also came out of my, the research for the, the Packraft handbook, when I, when I really dove deep into risk, I, f I came across this definition that, that resonated really well with me, and it breaks risk down into hazard and exposure and vulnerability. Hmm. So hazard are all the things we can't control. So in the river, that's the rock, the wave, the tree. Um, on ice, it's the thickness of the ice. On snow, it's the avalanche path. It's stuff we just don't control, air temperature, water temperature. Um, exposure is is w what's exposed to the hazard. So that's us, our partners, our equipment. And we, we do have a lot of control over that. It's whether we go or not. Yeah. Um, and it's when you get to that decision point as you're climbing up a mountain and you decide whether to continue or to turn back. That's an exposure decision. And then the third factor here, the vulnerability, that one we have a ton of control over. That's being trained to use your transceiver and that's wearing a PFD and that's um, practicing in a pool, knowing how to roll your kayak, all that stuff. Um, so the so in that framework, the difference between being close to home and being far from home is, is that you're really vulnerable when something goes wrong far from home. 
I can swim a class four rapid on six mile, you know, which is 200 feet from the road over and over again, over and over again, over and over again. And that's probably not that big of a deal. If I lose my boat, there's probably another party of boaters down river. Mm -hmm. um, if I do that same thing in the Brooks range, that can be a really big deal. So f for me personally, when I am planning a, a trip to a remote area, I, because that vulnerability is cranked up, I turn another dial down so that my risk stays low. So for me, like, like specifically if it's boating, I'm not really seeking a class four remote river, not at this stage of my life, because I know that the consequences are that much higher. I can do that here next to the road, no problem. I love that, that's what I wanna do here. If I'm gonna go remote, I'm gonna drop that down to class three, drop that down to class two. Yeah. Same thing with skiing. I'm personally not gonna try to ski a big gnarly line on the middle of a 200 mile traverse because the consequences of something going wrong are too big. Yeah, I think that's super important also for listeners to realize that that's back to the SOS button is that um, they're endangering other people and you push that. I mean, it is, it, I really like the idea of it's not part of the safety plan. It, it is really, you know, almost last resort because, A, it, you know, you're putting other, the, the rescuers in peril and you're um, using resources also that maybe they're better used somewhere else. If you're not really help, maybe someone else out there really does need help and you've just taken that opportunity away from them. Yeah, uh, that's a really good reminder. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, let's, um, we're cutting down on time. This is uh, Alaska uh, Public Media, um, Outdoor Sport. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. Um Let's uh, talk a little bit. We talked about remoteness and planning. Um, I also like your quote in your book. It says, uh, start and end at home. Oh. <laughs> at the very end. Yeah. And that's a great, just explain to everybody what that means. Um, yeah, start and end at home. This one is a little bit sad for me. Um, so I mentioned that Mount Logan trip that uh, I got caught in an avalanche there and, and mostly buried. And then also got snow blind later in the trip and then also got borderline hypothermic. Wow. So a lot of stuff went wrong. Yeah. And, and that was on my evolution. I had been invincible up to that point. I was just kicking ass. You know, yeah. I was doing those summer classics and winter classics. And we went up Denali with like easy, had an easy trip up Denali. And then we did Logan and all that stuff went wrong. And it was like, oh, <laughs> it was a big wake up call. And yeah. I, and I, it's just predictable, right? I was 32 or something. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's when that happens. Yeah. Um, and, and then two years later, my friend Rob Caradrown, we mentioned that earlier. Um, the, my girlfriend at the time, Amy, was a huge comfort for me when I was working through that loss. And then I think two years later, she died. Mm -hmm. in oh, an that's avalanche. tough. Oh, that's really tough. So this stuff was kind of stacked up for me. And it was after the avalanche um, that, that Amy died in that I just, I just wanted to kind of capture something Mm, to, to find some meaning or to find something useful. This is w what I've done with each loss. Like for Rob, it is this book. It's this, the Packard yeah. handbook is because of Rob's loss on a smaller scale for me coming out of, out of Amy's avalanche was I made this silly little sticker that has a heart on it and it has all these little 
terribly drawn stick figures about somebody leaving a cabin and going on skis yeah. and riding a bike and being in a pack raft and ending up back at the house. And it was just honestly for myself, this reminder just that the point is to start and end at home. And so I put that sticker on my skis, on my paddle. I gave it out to all my friends, all Amy's friends. And just as a, it was just a little action I could take that kind of helped me through that loss. That's right. Um, And we just got a minute or two left. So tell me about a trip. Tell me about something (laughs) that really went well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Why did this end up so dark? I I totally apologize for this being a dark episode because it's just, it's where I'm at right now. Like I'm trying to collect data. But we learn from that kind of stuff too, Lou. Exactly. No worries. No worries. Yeah. And that, and I'm, and I want to learn from it because I love what we're doing outside. Yeah. I just, I love Alaska. I love this outdoor time. Sarah, my wife and I, like our best time is when we're doing these trips together. Yeah. Um, and I can't even, I can't even come up with one, you know, one highlight here because it's just like my whole lifestyle is highlights of how fun it is <laughs> to be outside. Yeah. Um, on the spot in the in my the twenty second answer for you is that Sarah and I did this amazing ski loop. We did well, it was three quarters of a loop, so about you know two hundred seventy degrees on the circle. Trust of the wind forecast that had the wind change from westward to eastward oh, nice. overnight. That, yeah. So we we got blown east, and then we did a short portage, and then we got blown west to do I can't remember if it was sixty miles or so. Uh, with a tailwind the whole way. Oh, that's great. So for one hour of this route, without taking a single stride, we covered nine miles. Wow. Literally. Holy, that's yep. a tailwind. Standing yeah. next to yeah. each other, passing snacks back and forth, and just getting pushed along this black ice. That was Katmai National Park. Oh. That was a real gem for me. And this is skating or? On ice skates. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Ice skates with a tailwind. I mean, that's that's heaven. That is heaven, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm expecting. <laughs> Well, thanks, Luke. This has been great. Um, and I would really encourage people to go to Luke's website, which we'll have on the Outdoor Explorer on our website. We'll have a link to it. Um, and also look up his book, which is available. There's different stories here in Anchorage and around the state and through Luke himself. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, Luke. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for listening to my guest, Luke Mel. Luke's book, The Pack Wrapped Handbook, is available on his website, thinstolukat.com. This is your host, Paul Tordak, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, plan often and plan well, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.